Uh, as I was getting up here, I had two thoughts come to my mind. First was Rachel told me I totally had an alfalfa hair going on here. So uh, if you see that, you're welcome. If you don't, you're welcome. Uh, second was uh, hearing the beautiful sound of babies. I love it. I absolutely adore it, right? I, you know, I thought of, a picture came to my mind. How many of you have seen the meme that's called Grumpy Baptist? You guys seen that meme where it's like this guy, he's very serious and stoic looking, and he, he's like, here I am, I'm worshiping. I'm just so glad we're raising non-grumpy Baptists in our church. I love it, you know? The noises are beautiful, so celebrate that. It's great to hear life and, and great to see uh, people together. Let's, let's pray before we dive into our study here in Ecclesiastes uh, 8 and 9. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Tristan, who read to us. Thank you, God, for, for serving our body this morning in that way. I thank you that we can come to this passage as we think of the big, deep questions of life, I, I thank you that you have instructed us, that you have indeed given us principles to live by. And I pray as I try to make those things clear to your people this morning, that you would use me despite my quirks, despite my, uh, my sense of humor. Uh, Lord, that you would even speak beyond what I can say into the hearts and minds of your people by your word. May your people see how it is that you're at work in and through us for your glory. And may we live as those who have hope in front of others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are going to be, again, in Ecclesiastes 8 and 9 this morning. You know, one of the things that's great about this passage is that it gives us reminders. I don't know if you're like me, but I often need reminders. Every day when I get into the office, I have to make a list of things that I'm going to do for the day because I need notes, I need things written down, because I easily forget things. Do you easily forget things? I am all the time forgetting things. Whether it's my targets for the day or messages that I'm receiving and communicating, I am easy to forget things. A few years ago, I was preaching through the book of Philippians uh, here at the church, and I remember a distinct conversation that I had with one of the members of our church at that time. Uh, she had come up to me to, help, to share what she called helpful feedback on my sermon, right? And when I get feedback, I'm always nervous, right? Because people either say one of two things, pastor, that was wonderful, or pastor, that was horrible, and here's all the things you did wrong, right? Uh, feedback is a nervous thing for us. It's, it's hard at times to hear feedback on what you are doing, especially when you put a lot of time and energy and effort into it. When somebody wants to critique you, often you take it very personally. So I was nervous when she came up to me and said, hey, I want to share some feedback with you. And this is how it started. She said, you know, every week you keep telling us what the book of Philippians is saying, and it's really starting to get under my skin. And I was like, oh boy, right? I was like, this is not going the pastor that was wonderful way. This is going uh, a much different direction and I'm a little nervous right now. <laughs> What's she gonna say and how did I offend her, right? And then she continued on, she said, then I noticed while I was around and I was getting irritated through your introduction, you were telling me all these things that were going on in the book of Philippians. After church that morning, I had an interaction with somebody who wasn't able to actually make it for the sermon. And they asked me what the sermon was about. And I could tell them about the entire book of Philippians like that. And she said, so while you've been really annoying with this, it's actually been for my good. 
I mean, talk about that for feedback, right? Like, I don't know if it was encouraging. I think it was kind of encouraging. But here's what she was teaching me that I needed to embrace in that moment, is that we often need reminders. We need reminders of what God is doing and what he's saying and how we're to respond to what he's doing and what he's saying. And throughout the, the, our study in Ecclesiastes, we've come to hit a few ideas again and again as the preacher rises to give us this message. We learned that uh, from the preacher, as he observes life under the sun, that wisdom, pleasure, work, and possessions often promise more than what they can deliver. All the things of life that we long for, to be wise, to, to have joy, to work hard, to, to have good things, they often promise a lot to us, but they don't always measure up to what they promise. We also learn that our lives are short, that we're destined to die, and that if we're going to find meaning in life, we must live well by dying well. This book really tackles the deep questions of significance, meaning, and the practicalities of living for us. As Dave Gibson said, he says, we aspire to have it all, to know it all, to do it all, to achieve it all, to be happy forever, to have all of the answers, to never be left scratching our heads, and to be remembered by all for all of time. That's what we hope for. But what's the guarantee? Is there a guarantee? If you knew what would happen to you tomorrow, how would you live for today? As the preacher comes to the end of Ecclesiastes, he's moving from what we've seen as observations about life to now exhortation for us as his listeners. So as we begin to descend toward the landing strip that is the end of Ecclesiastes, guys, we're going to hear this morning that in light of the uncertainty and temporary nature of life, we must embrace the gifts of the Almighty. We must embrace the gifts of this life from the Almighty. So I'm going to break this up into two sections for us. In chapter 8, verse 16, all the way to 9, verse 6, we see what's the first bookend of this passage. If we were to look at the structure of chapter 8, verse 16, all the way to chapter 9, verse 12, we see what we call a wonderful little sandwich, okay? There's an opening piece of bread and an ending piece of bread. And the first piece of bread tells us that life is temporary. Life is temporary. And the, the second piece of bread is telling us that life is often uncertain in what we can expect. So let's look at these two ideas, and then we're going to land the plane on this call to embrace the gift of life that God has given to us. So first, life is temporary and uncertain. So if we again look at chapter 8, verse 16, the preacher says, When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the activity that is done on the earth, even though one's eyes do not close and sleep day or night, I observed all the work of God and concluded that a person is unable to discover the work that is done under the sun. Even though a person labors hard to explore it, he cannot find it. Even if a wise person claims to know it, he is unable to discover it. And so just by way of recap, we have been seeing all of the things that the preacher has observed, whether it's pursuing the meaning of life in politics, possessions, uh, wisdom, in relationships. Often, all of these things and all of the significance of what we're looking for, we can't find the answer. 
what he says is, as he's gone through this great task of observing all of life, he's come to one conclusion. No one can know perfectly what God is doing. No one can know perfectly what God is doing. But there is something that we can know with certainty, and that's what he gets to in chapter 9. So in 9 verse 1 he says, Indeed, I took all of this to heart and explained it. The righteous, the wise, and their works are in God's hands. People don't know whether to love or to hate. Everything lies ahead of them. Everything is the same for everyone. There is one fate for the righteous and the wicked, for the good and the bad, for the clean and the unclean, for the one who sacrifices and the one who does not sacrifice. As it is for the good, so also it is for the sinner. As it is for the one who takes an oath, so also for the one who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. There is one fate for everyone. In addition, the hearts of people are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. After that, they go to the dead, but there is hope for whoever is joined with all the living. Since a live dog is better than a dead lion, for the living know that they will die, but the dead don't know anything. There is no longer a reward for them because the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their envy have all disappeared, and there is no longer a portion for them in all that is done under the sun. And so you might be coming as we're hearing this and thinking, boy, weren't we just trying to talk about what could be hopeful for us? How could we find meaning and significance in life? Well, while our knowledge is limited and we are not the Almighty, the one certain reality that is for all humans is the reality of death. We know our end. That's what verses 1 through 3 shows us, is that we all have the same end. We've shared this statistic before. 10 out of 10 people die. Right? Every single one of us is going to be called to a moment where we will no longer be in existence in human form. We will be laid to rest, and we will, we will not have our existence here on earth anymore. With every chapter of Ecclesiastes we read, every verse we read, we are coming closer and closer to this reality. And in verse 3, the preacher calls this an evil. He calls this an evil. He says that death has a bitterness to it. But it's not necessarily that he's calling it evil just because of the sense of what it is. He's calling it evil because of how it works within us. Notice the ways that he describes it in, in verse 2. Death takes who? The righteous and the wicked. It takes the good and the bad. It takes the clean and the unclean. The one who sacrifices and the one who does not. The good and the sinner. The one who takes an oath and the one who fears. Death has this way of getting a hold of everybody. It doesn't make much sense to us. We can understand when someone is very old and they've lived a full life and they've had lots of experiences and they've, they've gone on to die. If they're a Christian, they're with the Lord. We can celebrate that. We can understand that. But all of us struggle when we see a young person who's passed away. Now, guys, this is a reality even for families in our town. I don't know if you've heard this, but recently in Hebron, there was a, a, a man who was a, a younger man who had a tractor accident, flipped his tractor, and he ended up dying. And there's a pasta dinner that's being raised, uh, funds are being raised for his wife and his children who have been left behind. 
And so I, I bet you that guy planned on going out to work his land on his tractor just like he did every other day beforehand. He didn't plan on that. And that's a cruel reality for us as we look at the circumstances of this man and, and his tragic death and his family. Now his wife and his children are left without any sense of security, any sense of knowing what is next for them. They're grieving. Death is bitter to us. We can't always explain how it works because we're not God. We don't know why it is that young people die and old people seem to live on and on and on forever. We can't explain every situation perfectly. But it's important to note that he says here that this is an evil that's done under the sun. This language, under the sun, it's not that God doesn't know what he's doing. God perfectly knows what he's doing at all times, in all places, in all things. But we don't know what's going on in all times, in all places, in all things. So the preacher tells us that there's one end for everybody. The end is death. And then in light of that, in verse 4, he starts to actually shift the tone, right? We've heard this message from him before. He said, death is coming. You better prepare for your death. Prepare for your death, right? We've heard this news. But notice how he shifts in contrast in verse 4, where he starts and he says, but, but what? There is hope for whoever is joined with all the living. And then he gives us this picture that may not make perfect sense to us. It's this picture of a live dog and a dead lion. So when we think of dogs, you probably think of the cute little golden retriever that you have in your home or that I long to have in my home that I'm going to name Fergus or something very Scottish because I can. And it would be really funny just to yell out the door and go, Fergus, come here. Right. I mean, we can think of things. My daughter Isla, she's one and a half, and her favorite stuffed animal right now is her puppy. She wakes up in the morning and she goes, puppy. She's always longing for this puppy, this little stuffed thing, right? We had to go and buy her one because there's one at daycare, right? And she was obsessed with this puppy, and she would cry every day that she had to put it back. So it was like, oh, man, real dog or stuffed dog? And I was like, stuffed dog all the way, right? Much cheaper, right? Don't have to feed. Don't have to clean up poo, right? There's lots of advantages to the stuffed dog. When, when the Bible's talking about dogs in this language here in verse 4, it's not the picture of the pretty little puppy that's a stuffed animal to us. Okay? Dogs in the Old Testament and in biblical times are used to present to us this picture of a vicious scavenger. One who is just traveling along trying to eat off the scraps of the land. Okay? Paul in Galatians called the Judaizers a bunch of dogs and said that it'd be better for them to eat their own vomit than to continue to, to go after God's people. So what's being explained here is the preacher saying it's better to be a live dog, be a vicious scavenger, to live in humble circumstances than to be what? Than to be a dead lion. Now the lion presents to us this picture of royalty, this picture of prowess, this picture of great confidence and, and, and hope, great might. And so the preacher's saying here, hey, the reality is that it's better to be alive and in humble circumstances than to be dead as 
royalty. Why is that? Well, he explains some of it to us. Verse 5, for the living know that they will die, but the dead don't know anything. The dead don't know anything. Guys, have you heard the way that people talk about those that have passed away? I, I want you to think of this for a moment. When, when you've heard people, especially non-believers, as they communicate that somebody has, has passed on, they often say things like, I know they're watching over me. I know that they would want what's best for me. They're my guardian angel. Have you heard these things communicated by people? The preacher is flying right in the face of that message with opposition. He's saying, the dead are dead. There is no more to their experience of living. They have ceased to exist. He's saying, no, it's not that they're looking on. It's not that they would talk to you in this moment. It's not that they would say these things. He's saying they can't say anything because dead is dead. And Paul tries to use the same imagery for us in Ephesians chapter 2 when he talks about what we are like in our sin. He says, in our sin, we are dead. We are not able to come to life in God. We need God to revive us, to make us alive through what? Through the gospel. And there's also this picture that's presented to us here that living in humble status is better than being dead, not only because we can know what's in front of us or experience the moment we're in, but also because we can recognize different ways that we relate to people. Verse 6, their love, their hate, their envy has already disappeared. That's those that have died, those that loved them. Right? Now, I want you to think of this, right? When somebody that you have loved dies, it's not necessarily that you stop loving them, but that it does change, doesn't it? In time, you may not be consumed with the reality of your love for them. Okay? I can give you this example. Just a few weeks ago, I, I was actually with my family. We, we buried my great-grandmother, right? my Grammy J. She was, oh, man, she was a hot ticket. And I, I talked about her this way. She, she was the kind of woman who would, as Allie Beth Stuckey would say, raise a respectful ruckus. Okay? She was always about having a good time, but she was also like a lady that had a granny fro and loved her grandkids, okay? She loved life, and she lived it well, and she did have a little bit of flair and craziness to her, but she was sweet as could be. And we used to, I, well, particularly I used to pick on her a lot uh, for the fact of her, like, little wild streak that was within her. My grandmother died over a year ago, and we just buried her, all the craziness of COVID. Some of you have lived through this, right? craziness of trying to bury those that have passed away during the COVID season. I mean, I was talking to a brother who pastors a church in Maine. He's so far up north in Maine that they can't bury any bodies until May comes and the ground has thawed. I mean, like, if somebody dies in January, they, cannot, they have to store that body for a number of months before they can bury this person, right? So, nonetheless, all that to come back to the reality. I buried my grandmother just a few weeks ago, great-grandmother. I miss her. I miss her laugh. I miss her quirky sayings. I love her. 
but life has moved on. And while I'm saddened by the reality of her death, her death has taught me something. Her death taught me that I don't get to have the time with the people that I love in the way that I would want to measure it. It's limited. You know, not many people can say that they grew up with their great-grandmother around and had 29 years of life with her. She's gone. I can't bring her back. Doesn't mean I don't love her. I love her. But the sense of her love isn't as present now as it was just even a few years back. The love has changed. Even the envy. You've had someone that you have had a horrible relationship with that has moved away or passed on. That envy, that hate goes away in time. He's teaching us we all have an end. And our end is death. And what's interesting about this is while this is certain, verses 11 and 12 give us a different picture. So look down in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 11. Again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong or bread to the wise or riches to the discerning or favor to the skillful. Rather, time and chance happen to all of them. For certainly no one knows his time. Like a fish caught in a cruel net or like birds caught in a trap, so people are trapped in an evil time as it suddenly falls on them. We know we're going to die. We don't know when. We know that there's going to be things that happen in life. And sometimes we live in such a way that we plan everything out just perfectly, right? Think of your five-year goal when you were a 20-something, you wanted to what? Maybe get married, have some kids, buy a house, get a job, have stability, right? We create these plans and we say, we're going to do all of these things and in the next five or ten years, we're going to set up life and it's going to look just like this. And then what happens? Something shifts. There are times where people's life change. How? We don't know how. We can't know how perfectly. Notice the pictures he uses here. We think in the terms of this, that the, the swiftest people, the fastest people are going to win the race. The tortoise and the hare taught us differently, didn't it? It's not always about how fast you are. It's not always that the strongest win the battle, right? We think strength and might, oh, okay, they've got this, right? And yet how many stories are there of small armies that have turned over great armies in victory? It's not always that bread and riches go to the wise. It's not always that favor is extended to those who have knowledge. We cannot know what the future is, and we cannot be caught in the light of thinking that we can prepare for it. So how can we have meaning in life? How can we have joy why is the preacher giving us all this information? What does he want us to land on? What he wants us to see, guys, is really at the heart of verses 7 through 10. That though life is temporary, and though death is certain, and we don't always know how things are going to go, he gives us this really wonderful answer to how we can live a life of purpose and meaning. He says this, live it well. Live it well. How do we live life well? By embracing the gifts that the Almighty gives to us. 
embracing the gifts of life. See what he says in verse 7. He starts with a command. He says, go. And I want you to guys think of Jesus and the Great Commission. After the disciples have seen him resurrected, and he says, Lord, what are we supposed to do now? And he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. He didn't just leave us to think on something. He gave us a command to enact, a purpose to fulfill. And the preacher here is telling these people, in your search of life, in your search of significance, even though it looks like all of this is crumbling around you, what do you do? You live life well. How? You go after what God has given to you. So what has God given to us? Look at verse 7. Go eat your bread and with pleasure and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already accepted your works. Man, God has given us a wonderful gift in food and drink. Amen? I know, this is like the Baptist favorite verse right here, right? We love a good food and drink, right? Some people, it's wine. Some people, they're like, give me that Pepsi Cola, right? We're praying for the people that like Pepsi, right? I mean, we're Coke people from the Northeast, right? I mean, like, isn't that's a thing, right? I don't know. You'll have to ask somebody that's really into that. Yeah. Uh, God has given us good gifts. He has given us the gift of bread, of drink. And notice what it says here, that we should enjoy them with pleasure. Now, there is a point where you can have too much of anything, right? Okay? So my birthday's coming up. Rachel made me a German chocolate cake. Praise God. Praise God. And here's what we were talking about last night as she was making this. She's like, do you want me just to save this so that you can eat it all? And inwardly, I'm like, hmm, that's an idea, right? But I said to her, I said, listen, you know what the thing is about cake? Cake is not meant to be eaten alone. It's meant to be shared with others. So some of you may enjoy that, right? (laughs) Matt's like, yes, (laughs) amen. We can enjoy the gifts that God has given to us. But there is too much. If I ate that cake on my own, I would be a glutton. Right? This is not total liberty to go just do as you please. And this is not the, also the same message of your depravity being so overwhelming that you should just be shut up into nothing and not try to do anything at all. What the preacher's saying is, here's what God has given. Enjoy what he's given to the fullest extent within reason. Notice what else he says. Ladies, ready? Let your clothes be white all the time and your head anointed with oil. It is not a problem to look good. It is not a problem to look good. Now, we can have a problem when we find our worth in how we look. These are distortions. He continues on. That we can find joy in the life that God has given to us with our spouse, with our wife, with your husband. God has given us really wonderful gifts in life. Now, the list that's here is not exhaustive, but it is meant to give us this picture of what a full life represents. Good food and drink, right? Not only that, but that you have that which you need. Your clothes are provided for. You're radiating. You're displaying beauty and joy. And you have a marriage that's fulfilling. A marriage that is 
bringing you joy and your spouse joy. These are all pictures of what we would say is the good life. But here's the thing. They can all be distorted. But just because they can be distorted by sin doesn't mean that God made them not as good things for us. We think of the abuse of bread and wine. We think of the abuse of our clothing and finding our adornment in material things. We can even think of the abuse of, of our relationships. These can all be used in horrible ways, but here's the thing. God made them, God created them, and what God has created, he has declared to be good. So though sin distorts us, and we realize that Romans 6 tells us all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death, that there's this distortion that's a reality, it doesn't mean that it can ever be uncreated. He's made it. And if he's made it, he's made it to be enjoyed, and we've made it to be, to be used in his purposes as he has designed it to be good. Now, I just want to take a moment to especially talk about enjoying your spouse. Notice how the preacher talks about this. Enjoy the life with the wife you love all the days of your fleeting life, which has been given to you under the sun all your fleeting days, for that is your portion in life and in your struggle under the sun. Marriage is a gift that God has given to us to be enjoyed. Not merely a relationship for us to put up with. It's a relationship that God has given to us to be enjoyed. Brothers in Christ, Paul told the Ephesians to love their wives like Christ loved the church by giving himself up for her that he might sanctify her and wash her with the word. Hear me clearly, you're not the one that sanctifies your wife. Jesus is. But that doesn't mean that you get to escape the responsibility of leading her well. You are a tool for her sanctification, and she is a tool for your sanctification. Can I get an amen? He goes on to say, that we should love our wives like our own bodies by cherishing her. And brothers, let me just tell you, some of y'all got to work on cherishing your wives. I have to work on cherishing my wife. The idea of cherish here is a picture of care and provision. Some of us think that we're just cherishing our wives by providing for her, but we're not listening. Some of us think that by our financial provision, we get to do whatever we want to do with our wives. That's not what Paul gave us for instructions. Yes, of course we need to care for her physically. Yes, of course we need to meet those needs. But brothers, so many of us struggle with emotionally being present for our wives. Because we're like, we don't want to hear about the problems, we just want to fix them. But here's the thing. Our wives need us to cherish them, to love them sacrificially, to give up of ourselves physically so that we can be there for them spiritually. I tell people all the time in premarital counseling that when a man marries a woman, that relationship becomes the primary relationship on earth. 
Now, wives, some of you need to hear this. You love your kids more than you do your husband. That's not what the Bible says that we're to do. It says that we're to love our husband, right? A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The primary earthly relationship for us here on earth is husband and wife. Remember what we've been saying in the parenting Bible study. We're not going to ruin our kids. They came to us ruined by sin. But remember, we can't believe the myth of the world that the kids in our lives are the center of our universe. No, sir. Marriage needs to take its first place. You want to love your kids well? Show them a good marriage. Invest in your wife. Lead her. Care for her. Cherish her. Wives, you want to show your husband or show your kids how to follow good leadership and good authority? Submit to your husband when it matters, when he's doing so in a godly manner. Are we invested in marriages? Are we just giving assent to the fact that God has made us married and we're just putting up with our marriages? I want to be that old couple that when somebody comes around church, they go, how do you guys love each other so much? And I'm, I'm sure we're going to be like, I hope we're like Jean and Joan, where we can say like, well, she's put up with a lot. <laughs> and oh boy, he's had it rough. I want to be able to see things with some laughter, some humor, but I also want people to know without a shadow of a doubt that I'm all about my wife and she's all about me. Guys, we need to enjoy our spouses, not just put up with them. Not just fix them. We need to trust Jesus, that he is going to shape us and mold us and sanctify us. And as we submit to his word, as we run to him, as we lay our faultless, our faultful lives before him, that he will indeed look at us and say, I've got you. I'm with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm right here. The beauty of these, these commands that God, or that God gives us through the preacher in Ecclesiastes is they're simple. They're not exhaustive. And especially that they're a foretaste of what's to come. Notice the language that's used here, bread and wine. A foretaste in Ecclesiastes pointing to a greater meal. The Lord's Supper, where Jesus would say that he became the bread in the cup that he broke himself for us and he spilled his blood that we would be covered. The bread and the wine that is talked about in Revelation 22, where, 21, where we see that there's going to be a marriage feast between the bride, the church, and the husband, the Lord Jesus. The kind of celebration that the prophet Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah 25, 6, where he said, that will be the day when God's people will eat a feast prepared by him of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine that's refined, when death will be swallowed up and no longer have rain. That's the foretaste of what we're looking to, our life in Jesus. 
the joys of eating and drinking before him, the joys of being his and he being ours, the joy of finding real significance and real meaning lies not in the temporary pleasures of the world. It lies in knowing Jesus and enjoying the life that he gives to us. So how do we go about it? Verse 10. Whatever your hands find to do, do with all your strength. Because there is no work, planning, knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Now here's the news, guys. Every moment matters. Every moment, every season here forward matters. We don't get to go back and do it again. So we have got to seize the opportunity that's in front of us. We have got to embrace the gifts that God has given to us. And we have got to enjoy them with everything that he has given to us. With all of our might, with all of our joy, may we be able to say, like Colossians 3.17, that everything we have done is in the name of the Lord Jesus and that we give thanks to God the Father through him. Brothers and sisters, we can enjoy life by embracing the gifts that God has given to us. The simple things, the simple joys, but we can miss them too if we're caught up in what's not essential. Let's ask the Lord to give us wisdom as we run to these things and run to him. God, we thank you that your word gives us clear instruction on how to enjoy life in you. I pray that you would help us to remember this certain reality that we're all going to die, the, to face the uncertain reality of we don't know when, but to live in this moment not with liberty in such a way that we would say, should we continue that sin, in sin that grace would abound? but in a way that we are living with satisfaction, with significance, with our joy found in the clear things that you have given to us right in front of us. And those things that we long for, Lord, the things that we long for, whether it's restored relationships, whether it's healing, whatever it may be, may we ultimately lay those down that we would find our satisfaction in what, in you first, and in where you have us. So may we come, may we come to you with our weariness, with our brokenness, with everything that is burdening us. May we seize what you've brought in front of us, and may we say, this is the life that the Lord has given to us. This is the day that you have made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.